This is Focal Point for Thursday the 14th of April 2011. Get smart. Welcome to Focal Point, the podcast that shows you how to tap into the power of the internet in your business and your life. Now it's over to your hosts, Chris Pudney and Gihan Pereira for this week's edition. How are you going, Chris? How are you? I'm well, thanks, Gihan. I liked your intro. How are you? <laughs> Uh, I'm well, I'm well, because Get Smart is one of my favourite TV shows from the 1960s. I've got the whole collection on five DVDs. Fantastic, good for you. <laughs> so today's topic, we're going to be talking about how to get smarter uh, online. When we're looking into, I guess, mainstream news stories and the way that they're reported, and this whole thing was triggered by something that you started investigating recently, Chris, so why don't you lead us off with that? Yeah, that's right. So about a month ago, the, uh, the terrible earthquake in Japan took place, followed by the devastating tsunami. And the news media focused on that initially, but one of the side effects of that has been the unfolding events at the Fukushima nuclear reactor. And that seems to have drawn much of the, the media focus, from the mainstream media, that is. And it's tended to be, in my opinion, really sensationalised. They seem to have really hyped the potential dangers arising from this, whilst neglecting uh, focusing on you know, the outcome and the results of the, the earthquake and tsunami. I think the official figures for the tsunami and earthquake are some 28,000 peop- uh, 28, people are confirmed dead or missing. Whereas uh, the nuclear reactor, I think maybe there were two people killed in the initial uh, tsunami, uh, and since then a few people have been sick and uh, long term there's no way that uh, uh, the death toll is, is, is predicted to rise anywhere near the consequences of the earthquake and yet the mainstream media really have focused on that whereas I noticed um, in some of the online media sources that I follow that uh, there was a far more sober assessment of uh, what the actual consequences of uh, the, the nuclear reactor problems were and so that got me thinking about, you know, how it is that we can find out what the truth really is, get a, a more sober assessment or a, a less biased assessment of these kinds of things that we sometimes see sensationalised in the mainstream media. And today, particularly, we've got access to all those resources online uh, for the people who choose to use them. And so today we're going to talk about how to evaluate information that you find online, how to evaluate information you get in the mainstream media, and then how to dig deeper to get to get the truth as much as we can find. Yeah, so, so the truth is out there, and we, as, as you've just said, Gihan, we've got the ability to get it now, with the, get to it or with the internet now. But uh, getting to it still is problematic. There's a lot of rubbish out there that you've got to wade through. Um, and one of the things I noticed in the mainstream media was that occasionally they would interview an expert. They would get a nuclear scientist uh, um, into the program and they'd ask them questions about uh, the unfolding events at the nuclear reactor. But the, 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 the experts tended to say rather boring and unsensational things. In fact, at one point the interviewer asked, yeah, but what's the worst case scenario? What's the worst that could possibly happen? And unfortunately for the interviewer, uh, the scientist said, well, you know, things might get a little bit worse, but not the kind of thing that I think the interviewer was, uh, was searching for. And you pointed out to me an excellent article from the satirical website, The Onion, Kihan. Yeah, that's right. It was, uh, is something that we'll, we'll include a link to this in the, uh, in the blog post notes because it is quite funny. The headline was, Actual Expert Too Boring for TV. <laughs> and, and that's exactly right. I mean, even though we laugh at it, it's, it's actually true that the media wants people who are willing to express pretty 
extreme views rather than the more moderate view, which might actually be the truth. So that's why we're particularly offering this podcast as a bit of a public service to help you get at the truth and not just believe everything that you see in the media. And I know that a number of listeners to this podcast, a number of people who are already doing online research and who are active online, already uh, aren't as gullible as a lot of others, so they already take everything they see in the media with a grain of salt, but that still doesn't mean that they know how to get to the truth and find the more balanced, reasonable um, opinions, especially, so for example, this Chris is completely outside my area of expertise, so I'm kind of looking for stuff, but I have to evaluate what I read, I have to understand what I read, I have to look for biases in what I read and, and still put it all together to come to what I think is, is as close as possible to the truth. So where do you start, Gihan? Where do When you're on this journey to find the truth and you're not an expert in a particular area, how do you start? Where do you start? Well, I think one of the things to start with, and we'll give a bit of a plug to our coming book, Chris, out of office, is um, to be sceptical. And in our, in our book, we we point out a number of things that will help you once you start letting in the world and once you start using the online world to be sceptical and to evaluate information. I I think that's the best way to get started. And uh, for people who are interested in the book, it will be available soon from outofofficebook.com. But let's go through the list that we made, Chris, and we've we've, um, omitted a couple of them. But let's just go through the list, the the things that we talked about to be sceptical. Sure, okay. Would you like me to kick off? Yeah, you go ahead. Yeah, so uh, in the first instance, uh, you can seek multiple sources. So rather than relying on uh, what you're being told by a single uh, individual source, you can, using the Internet, you can find out different opinions, and uh, there are many of them available in most cases. So seek them out. Find out what others have to say about the the, re- the area you're researching uh, rather than just taking it from a single person who might be biased or have a vested interest. Yeah, and the only one thing I'd add to that is when you look at the sources, sometimes they all come back to one or two other sources. So even though they might be published in other areas, uh, in, in multiple, say, in multiple newspapers, it may all be coming back to one source. So just be careful of that when you're looking for multiple sources, that you are really looking for different sources, not just the same source quoted over and over again. Yeah. Uh, but, and the second thing is, is related to that is sticking with the crowd. So where multiple sources is looking for multiple authority, sticking with the crowd is finding where the general people, where lots of people are hanging out. That doesn't mean listen to talkback radio necessarily, <laughs> um, but it does mean that there are places where lots of people hang out. And we talked about, in the, we talked about in the book that Wikipedia is one place which is not perfect, but because there are a lot of people looking at Wikipedia, it tends to be fairly accurate because it does tend to get updated fairly quickly if mistakes occur. And we'll talk about Wikipedia a little bit later. Absolutely. Uh, another point is not to be fooled by appearances. So we'll talk about this later in the podcast in more detail. But often uh, you've got front organizations that have the veneer of independence and uh, a sort of scientific credibility. But when uh, you dig a bit deeper, you find that they're often fronts for uh, particular organizations or pursuing a particular uh, political agenda or ideology. So just dig a bit deeper and make sure that the, this particular source really is credible and reputable. Yep, okay, and the next one is kind of something that's only really available in the online world, which is look for sources which give you popularity factors, such as ratings. So there are websites where you can, where, um, you can actually rate comments by people, you can go on a discussion forum and mark somebody with a plus one or a minus one to say you like it or dislike it or a thumbs up or a thumbs down. Even doing things like reading blogs 
look past the blog post to read the comments. And again, the comments are just random people commenting, so they will have their own biases. But if you take the comments as a whole, you can get a pretty good idea of where the truth might actually be. That's right. Following the thread of comments uh, to the article, I find sometimes just as informative as the original article itself, Kihan. Some of those comments have uh, replies as well, uh, so it's a really good... And you can also be part of that conversation as well, so that's a, a really good feature of searching online. Uh, the other thing, another point to worth mentioning is, are there any vested interests? So is the person putting forward this particular information? Are they, do they have a particular agenda that they're pushing? Do they have a particular ideology that, uh, that they're pursuing and that uh, influences or biases the information that they're supplying? So, uh, again, do some background checking and find out more about the particular person or organisation that's putting forward the, the point of view. Yep, and, and vested interests aren't necessarily bad because, of course, the people who are the most qualified are some, sometimes people who do have vested interests, but you do take that into account. And that leads to the second thing, which I just mentioned, which is what are the qualifications or credentials. So, again, having a PhD even in nuclear physics doesn't necessarily mean that you'll be speaking the truth. However, not having a PhD in nuclear physics uh, does strongly mean that you shouldn't necessarily believe that person. You should be looking at what they, uh, who, they are, who they are quoting in order to, to back up their opinions and be very sceptical when you have unqualified people talking about things, particularly scientific things, without, without knowing about them. And Chris, you, had a, you pointed me to an article by Ben Goldacre who's a British science journalist, and he talks, uh, he's written an article about when journalists do primary research and making the point that journalists aren't scientists, so they shouldn't be doing research. And similarly, there in the US, there's a big anti-vaccination campaign, a scare campaign, and Jenny McCarthy is the front of it, a former actress, and uh, maybe even a current actress, and Oprah, uh, who provides a platform for people like that. So just be very sceptical when you see people like that talking about science without having the authority behind them or quoting authorities uh, to back up what they're talking about. Yeah, and finally, uh, are you getting a balanced argument? So is only one point of view uh, being put forward? And in that case, is, the, is that person cherry-picking the evidence in order only to present uh, information that supports their point of view and their particular bias? Or are you getting to see both sides of the argument? Is, uh, is a counterpoint being presented as well, in which case you get the chance to weigh the evidence and uh, for yourself rather than only getting a, a single point of view? And uh, going back to our previous point about um, um, looking for ratings factors, where comments on posts are, are um, enabled online, then often you can see people putting forward those, uh, those counterpoints and uh, hopefully citing some evidence to support that. Yep. Okay. So that's, I think that's a pretty reasonable list for you to be careful when you're assessing information that you find online. So that's the starting point. So the first thing is just be skeptical. Just don't take things at face value. And I think most of us know that, but, but that list that we've been through might be a useful checklist for you and maybe a useful reminder of some of the things that you could be doing. So the next step, of course, is then getting into the research. So now we've been skeptical. So now we say, okay, with our skeptical hat on, where do we start looking for information? Uh, and I think 
the, the first place to start is with the mainstream news sources, uh, even though we know that they're biased, even though we know that they're looking for a, a sound bite, even though we know that they're looking for the extreme point of view. It is worth starting with them because quite often you'll find that occasionally they'll have links to other resources and sometimes they will have useful words and phrases or names that you can then do a Google search or a Wikipedia search to find out more about the topic. Yeah, absolutely. And Wikipedia, of course, which we've covered in, we've covered before and spoken about earlier in the podcast, that's a, a great online resource. It's an online encyclopedia and one of the great benefits of it is, as we said, this, the fact that a large number of people use Wikipedia. They're looking at the articles. If they spot any, uh, um, malicious attempts to deface pages or introduce bias, then, uh, it's possible to correct that. Uh, and also, Wikipedia often uh, has flags on its web pages if, for instance, things like um, it looks like the page might be biased or there's lack of citations to support the claims being made in the page. These sorts of things are flagged on the pages themselves to, uh, to help guide you when you're assessing the information that's presented there. And hopefully, uh, the, there are citations that you can actually follow up and check for yourself to make sure that the evidence that supports the argument presented on the page uh, is credible and does have uh, have some weight behind it. It is worth just emphasising what you just said, Chris, about the way that Wikipedia works with the citations and the, the additional information, because I've talked to a couple of people who are pretty regular Wikipedia users, and when, when I mentioned that to them, they weren't aware of it. But it is useful to understand that Wikipedia, the pages on there, they're not just... Um, static pages, there is information about their history and information about their, how accurate they are. And that's rare. It's rare to see in print. It's rare to see online where you see not just the information presented, but you see some background to it. So, so when you're looking at Wikipedia, do look for those little flags to say that things like citations needed or look at the history. And you can even see that there's uh, Wikipedia. You can see debates between two groups sometimes, editing and re-editing a page. And you can see the control behind it so Wikipedia page all Wikipedia pages aren't created equal that's right so all that uh, that background information that you're able to get into on Wikipedia pages helps gives you a feel for uh, the repu- the reputation of the individuals putting forward information and how much evidence supports the arguments that are presented there yeah and the other place that a lot of people would start their search with is, of course, Google. And it's a good place to start, but there's a, there are some special areas that you can look at as well that you don't normally think of when you normally do a Google search. And I think you know more about these than I do, Chris, so I'm just going to hand over to you. You can probably explain Google Scholar and all the others in more detail. No worries. Yeah, Google Scholar is a beta project uh, by Google, and uh, it just restricts it's indexed to scholarly publications. So rather than uh, indexing all of the websites out there, Google Scholar uh, goes to online um, publications that academics put their, put their um, published articles into. So what, when you search there, you get links to scholarly articles. And there are other um, private uh, efforts at that as well. There's one called Cyrus. I think that might be by uh, one of the big publishers, Elsevier perhaps. There's also CiteSeerX, which is focused primarily on um, information technology and computer science publications. And then there's PubMed, which uh, focuses on health and medicine publications. So in all of these cases, these indexes allow you to search through um, academic and scholarly um, articles on a particular area. So that's good if you want to find out what uh, scholars and academics and other experts are talking about. 
ultimately you end up reading scholarly literature. And, well, that can be a problem if you're not an expert in that field, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. Yeah, that's right. That is, that is a problem. Um, and the other point that we make is that people will often go to Wikipedia and the, the normal Googles uh, first up and find some information. But if you to, to find some of these the things that you've just talked about, Chris, you have to go looking. You have to make an active effort to look for them rather than just assume or hope that they're just going to turn up in Google searches. Yeah. So, as you said, the next step is, of course, weighing the evidence that you read and uh, that, that you find. And that's not always easy, but there are a couple of tips that we can give you to help you with your search, especially if you're a layperson. That's right. So, uh, as we mentioned uh, in, in the last step, one place you can go to is looking at the, the academic literature because it's been peer-reviewed. That is, that other academics and scholars in the field have looked at uh, the publication and assessed whether it's worthy of being published, uh, and it only gets to be published if it meets a certain criteria or meets a certain standard. Um, but they have to appear in reputable journals, and this can be a problem if you're not an expert in a particular field. You don't know which journals happen to be uh, uh, the ones that have the highest reputational impact factor and which ones might actually be fake academic journals. And there was an uh, occurrence uh, a few years ago where the pharmaceutical company Merck engaged one of the science publishers to set up what was a fake academic journal. I think it was published in Australia, in fact. It was. Uh, yeah. And... Um, uh, so it had had a kind of scientific veneer, but it wasn't public. It wasn't peer-reviewed articles that appeared in this particular journal. It was just uh, preprints from uh, studies done by Merck that made their products uh, appear to be efficacious. Yeah, that's right. That's right, and uh, that's the sort of thing that you just, as a layperson, it's very difficult to know. Uh, so when you find a journal, just do a Google search for that journal name as well to see if there are any news articles or stories about it, to see whether there's any controversy around it. Uh, similarly, when I was doing some research into the climate change debate to try and get to the to the bottom of that, I'm not sure anyone has got to the bottom of it, but I was trying to understand more about it, I came across some statements from the Union of Concerned Scientists so I looked them up, I looked up their website, and then delved a little bit deeper into uh, what you need to do to become a member of the Union of Concerned Scientists. And it turns out you, you pay $25 membership fee, or you pay $35, and they send you a mass mat, and, and that's it. That's all it takes to become a member of this organization, which seems like an organization of scientists who's making, uh, who's making supposedly scientific proclamations about climate science and other other scientific topics. But and in fact, they're, they're just a lobby group in effect. And there are tons of these front organisations, unfortunately, and they're set up to advance various political agenda and ideologies uh, from uh, sort of li left-leaning liberal ones like the Union of Concerned Scientists to um, conservative right-wing ones uh, and industry-backed ones as well. They... They present a kind of veneer of scientific credibility, uh, but as we said earlier, you've got to look for these vested interests, find out who founded these organisations, where their money's coming from. So do a bit more background research into uh, exactly who these organisations are and find out whether they are truly, uh, whether they're biased or whether they're, they're neutral organisations. 
Yeah, and just before we leave the, the topic of looking at reputable journals, Chris, I think it's also worth pointing out that sometimes reputable journals get it wrong. And one of the biggest cases of this was recently The Lancet, the medical journal in the UK, withdrew a paper by Andrew Wakefield. Um, there were reasons why they withdrew it, which I won't go into, but it basically turned out that the paper, the paper wasn't scientifically sound. And unfortunately, when they first published the paper in The Lancet, that's what started the big anti-vaccination movement, which has actually caused lots of deaths around the world, in the, in the Western world. And yet it was published in a peer-reviewed credible journal and therefore people took took that study and then extrapolated from it and only now, only recently has the Lancet retracted that but there will still be a lot of people who don't realize, who don't, who aren't aware of the history and who are then perhaps relying on what what they thought was a reputable paper in a, in a scientific journal. Exactly, yeah, as you say the Lancet is very reputable and, the, and it went through a, peer, a rigorous peer review process but uh, the study was essentially fraudulent. But it doesn't doesn't have to be a, a case of outright fraud. Sometimes it's just wrong. Sometimes these things do turn out to be wrong, uh, in spite of being reviewed, peer-reviewed, and in reputable journals. And we just have to be aware of that. That's the nature of scientific research, uh, and you have to keep abreast of these things as uh, as scientific findings change over time. Yep, and there's an, there's another resource that uh, you mentioned, Chris, the Cochrane Collaboration, which I've heard of as well, but you probably know more about it than I do. Sure. So the Cochrane Collaboration does medical meta studies, and what happens often is that uh, a research group might perform a study into, let's say, the efficacy of a particular drug or therapy, but at the end of the study, they find that for whatever reason, um, their results aren't statistically significant. It might be because the number of people or the number of recruits for the study was insufficiently large. And there might be several other studies of that nature into the same same um, particular therapy. But again, the, the small number of uh, participants meant that they didn't come up with a statistically significant finding. So what the Cochrane Collaboration do is they aggregate these findings such that uh, they end up with a large number of um, effectively a large number of participants in these studies such that their finding might actually be statistically significant. So it's like a, a means of aggregating a number of smaller studies into something in order to, to get a, a result that might actually mean something statistically that is meaningful. Yeah, that's right. So that is useful to, to look at the Cochrane Collaboration and we'll, we'll include a link to that in the podcast notes. Absolutely. But as we said earlier, one of the problems that we face in weighing the evidence uh, when it's in a scholarly peer-reviewed journal is that it's written for scholarly peers, not people like us, lay people, unless, of course, you're a computer scientist like me or Gihan, and then we understand this stuff implicitly. <laughs> but we might be able to make sense, for instance, of the abstract and the conclusions if the article is well-written, and that's not always the case. But we can't necessarily critique uh, the, the, the content of the paper itself. We can't make... Uh, we can't assess whether the findings are statistically significant. We're relying on the peer review process to have done that for us and have weeded out uh, uh, the, the wheat from the chaff, so to speak. So what we, uh, what we can do then is we can turn to science journalists whose, if, whose job effectively is to take uh, the scientific literature written for academics and scholars and to translate it into language that lay people like ourselves can understand. And so there are quite a few popular science resources uh, that these science journalists contribute to, and they can help us to make better sense of these sorts of things and stay informed as well.
Yeah, so let's talk about a few of those resources, Chris. And I guess as a prelude to that, I think it's worth saying that don't only look for these resources when you need them. I think some of this some of this stuff is really worthwhile subscribing to and you don't have to go back to their websites over and over again because they're often blogs or podcasts or newsletters or Twitter feeds. It's worth subscribing to now so that you become more well-informed anyway and you also get some idea of the sort of things that they're talking about so that when you actually do need them as opposed to just uh, reading them for interest, when you do need them, you can come to them with a, a much more with a, with a better informed view yourself of the sort of information you're going to get from them. Yeah. So uh, some of the popular science journals uh, that, uh, off, that, that have websites also offer blogs. So you can subscribe to blogs from uh, places like New Scientist and Scientific American. And a website I came across recently that's only just been set up called The Conversation. I read a couple of articles. One was, was really good. It cited a lot of evidence to support the opinion and suggestions being made. And then another I read this morning made me feel uh, left me feeling... Uh, well, that wasn't really worth it. But it's, I'm going to keep an eye on it and see whether it is any good. It's effectively um, articles are written by scholars and academics, but the conduit through their website is peopled by science journalists. So they edit the articles and they help the academics in putting uh, their research into layman's terms. So... Uh, I don't actually subscribe to many blogs from these websites because I find it easier instead to listen to their podcasts. So um, I subscribe to Brian Dunning's Skeptoid and I listen to the Scientific American podcast, their 60-second 60 science and weekly podcasts. Uh, the IEEE has Spectrum Radio and ABC Radio National has uh, The Science Show. So we'll, we'll include links to all of those, as Kihan mentioned. Yeah, and the other one that I'll add to that list, Chris, is that there's a weekly group called um, the New England Skeptic Society, I think, but they publish a podcast called The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, yeah. which is a science-based podcast, and it is pretty current. And They do it every week, and they talk about current science news. So they have talked about the Japanese nuclear reactor issue. They have talked, they talk a lot about climate change. They talk about a lot of stuff that's happening. It's a little bit US-centric, but still, there's enough value in there that I listen to it every week, even though it is an hour to an hour and a half every week. Yeah. And finally, uh, you can follow uh, some, some science journalists like Ben Goldacre and Simon Singh, who's a physicist, and Brian Dunning, who we just mentioned, uh, who uh, runs the Skeptoid podcast. And also listen to Dr. Carl. He's got a couple of podcasts as well. And I've got to put a plug in for Tim Minchin, who isn't a science journalist, but he's, <laughs> he's more of an entertainer, but he has a bit of a scientific bent to him like uh, ourselves. <laughs> he certainly does. That's right. So I guess in summary, what we're saying is that, look, you know, being a well-informed citizen is not easy. So it's much, much easier just to ignore all this stuff and just follow what everybody else is doing and just so go, okay, it's happening in other parts of the world. I don't, it doesn't even matter if it's wrong, so I don't really care that much. But if you do want to be better informed and you do want to have uh, informed opinions rather than biased ones, then the internet gives us unprecedented abilities to dig deeper. If we, if we take up that opportunity. And I think you've got a fantastic quote to close with, Gihan, so I'm going to uh, hand it over to you again. Yeah, look, this was attributed to Mark Twain, and uh, he said, the man who doesn't read good books has no advantage over the man who can't. And uh, I think that's absolutely true, and I think the, the 21st century version of that would include men and women, and we're not just talking about books now, but we're talking about websites, podcasts, blogs, and Twitter. Including this, this podcast, Gihan. Yes, that's right. That's right. I hope you got some value from it and we'll be back next month with a new podcast. Fantastic, Gihan. I'll speak to you then. Thanks, Chris.
You've been listening to the Focal Point Podcast. You can find us on the web at www.focalpointpodcast.com. Subscribe to the podcast, listen to our past episodes or leave us your comments or questions. We look forward to having you back next time.